All right, guys. Well, hey, I want to ask you a question. How many of you guys are doing online classes a little bit right now? Anybody got an online class? Yes. Some of us had to ask our neighbors whether or not we had that online class. So when... He's getting angry now. He's, it's a bummer. Maybe if he studied a little bit more for those online classes, he would have known. But, uh, oh, see, he's, he's still upset. It's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll forget that he's talking about it right now. <laughs> well, I don't know if you guys have these on your online classes, but in seminary, you have these things in your online classes because you got your professor who did all the lectures and did all the teaching, and then you have a teacher's aide. Do you guys have any teacher's aide, a TA? Does anybody have that in their classes? Yeah. So maybe like one teacher is teaching like 150 students or something, and then you've got like four teacher's aides. It might look like that in your class. Maybe the teacher's aide is just maybe a fellow student. Maybe you've had those in the past, at least in high school. I remember I was a teacher's aide in high school. Basically what that meant was I was grading papers. I was doing stuff for the teacher that the teacher didn't have time to do. But right now, with, there's on, with being online classes, there's a lot of teacher's aides. And what they do is basically their job is to help the students with the time that the professor can't spend on helping the students. So for example, I'm in a class right now that's got like 160 students, okay? So the professor is not sitting down at his desk every day just answering every student's email. He's got teacher's aides that are basically hired by the school. They're like teachers in training, right? Like kind of like student teachers. They're teachers in training that are hired to answer my questions. So if I have a question about some assignment for my Greek class or something, I go ask the teacher's aide. I don't even go and talk to the professor because the teacher's aide is there to help me out to answer my questions. And the reason they're there is to help me as a student with all of the stuff that I don't know. So whether it's with assignments or anything like that, I go to the teacher's aide if I need help. Okay? That little picture of having professor and having a bunch of teacher's aides, Jesus says he is going to leave the disciples. And the passage we're going to look at tonight, and why I wanted you to grab your Bibles, is we're looking at a passage tonight where Jesus is about to say, I'm leaving, but I'm going to leave you with a helper. I'm going to leave you with somebody that's going to keep us connected even while I'm not here physically on this planet anymore. So I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16, because Jesus says that right here in John 16. So grab a Bible, turn to John 16. If you don't know where that is, you can look at the front of your Bibles, and there's a little table of contents there. Or just go kind of to the, the end of the Bible and start working backwards. It's probably four-fifths of the way through that book. You see Matthew, you see Mark, you see Luke, you see John. On the other side of that, you see Romans and Acts. You can go backwards. Gospel of John is what we're looking at tonight. So I want everybody to check that out. So We've talked about this a few times as we've gone through the series where Jesus is essentially at a dinner table. He's at a dinner table having a conversation with his best friends, his disciples, and he's about to leave. And the problem is he's warning them that he's about to leave and he's giving them instructions for when he's gone. So one of the things that happens is the disciples start to ask the question and they start to get concerned. Wait a minute, if you're leaving, how do I follow you? How do I stay connected to you if you're leaving? Jesus spends all this time in John 15 saying you need to abide in me or remain in a relationship with me. So he's very clear about that. Then he says in John chapter 15 that we studied last week, he says the world, when I'm gone, is going to hate you. Just like the world hates me right now, Jesus says, when I'm gone, the world's going to hate you. It's going to hate disciples of Jesus. They're not going to embrace, the world's not going to embrace disciples of Jesus as their own. Now he says that when I'm gone, I'm going to send a helper to you. We've already seen this in this passage, but I want to check it out right here. In the middle of verse 4, you might see in your Bible there's a paragraph change. 
there's a heading that says the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the section of verses we're going to study tonight. Verses 4 all the way to 15. So these 12 verses, we're going to check it out. Jesus says to them, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He just said earlier, the thing he just said was, you're going to be persecuted. People are not going to like you. There are going to be people who even want to kill you and they'll think they're doing something good for God. And Jesus said, I didn't share that with you at the beginning because I've been with you this whole time. Because all the hate, all the things that people have done to hurt the disciples, guess what it's all been directed at? It's not really been directed at the disciples. It's been directed at Jesus. Now Jesus says, I'm going to leave. And now I need you, you guys to know that hatred is not just going to be directed at me. It's going to be directed at you. So you need to be prepared for that. And he says, I didn't share this with you because I was with you the whole time at the beginning. But now, verse 5, I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you even asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He says, it's not even that they asked where he was going. He said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, a bunch of times. The disciples did ask, hey, where are you going? In the sense that they said, well, I don't know how to get where you're going, Jesus. And then Jesus says he's the way and the truth and the life. But they don't ask selflessly. They don't ask wanting to know, Jesus, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to you when you leave? They're not asking for Jesus' sake. They have asked in the past, but it's only been selfishly. It's only been for their sake. So Jesus says, you haven't even been concerned about me here. He says, but I've said these things to you, and now sorrow has filled your heart. These people are sad because their, their best friend, their mentor, their teacher, their leader, their Lord, Jesus is going to leave. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. I want you to imagine being there, sitting there at the table with Jesus. What would that be like? What would it be like following him for three years? That'd be amazing. That'd be like the time of your life because you'd be interacting with Jesus in a very particular way. Then Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to leave and it's going to be good for you that I'm gone. That would be a total plot twist, right? That'd be a total, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? There's no way it's better for you to be gone. There's, there's no way. That doesn't make any sense. And that's what the disciples were thinking. But Jesus says, no, it's better for you that I leave. And the reason is because if I don't go back to the Father, we won't send the Spirit to you, okay? That's the, the teacher's aid. That's the helper that we talked about at the beginning. Jesus says, I'm going to leave, but when I'm gone, I'm going to send the Spirit to you, All right? And when I say the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, I wonder what you think of. You probably don't think of any pictures or anything like that. You don't know what he looks like, right? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. But I wonder what you think of, okay? These disciples only knew what the Old Testament said about the Spirit. It said quite a bit. But the reality is they didn't have much that they were going on. They didn't have much that they thought of when they thought of the Spirit. So this felt like new information for them, even though the Old Testament promised that, and we're going to look at that later. The Old Testament actually promised that God was going to send his spirit to live inside of his people. So that was promised, but now the disciples come face to face with that fact because Jesus says, I'm going to go. It's going to be better for you that I'm gone. How is it better? Well, verse 8 says, when he comes, when the spirit, the Holy Spirit, or he's also called the helper here, when the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That word convict, you might know if you've been around church a lot, maybe if you haven't been around church, you might think of convict like in a courtroom, 
right? A criminal is convicted of, of the crime that they, they committed. Or maybe some trial is going on and the, the judge says you're going to be convicted of murder, right? Or whatever. That's the word that we use for that, okay? That is partially what he's talking about right here. If you notice, Jesus says the spirit is going to do something to the world. Now, what did Jesus say about the world in verse 18? If you look back up in your passage, right? If you're in John 16, look at John 15, 18. What does he say about the world? Is the world the good guys or the bad guys? Okay. Well, it says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Okay. So the world in this passage are not the good guys. So what is Jesus saying the spirit is going to do to the world, the bad guys? They're going to be convicted. Okay. That's what Jesus is saying. That's who he's talking about. Now, I think the spirit doesn't just convict the world. I think he also convicts people in the church. But right now what he's saying is the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to convict the world. And what does that look like? Well, it looks a lot like that courtroom scene that you thought of earlier, right? The judge saying, you are convicted of your sin. You are going to be judged for the wrong thing you did, for, for the murder or whatever in the courtroom the person did, right? You're convicted of that. There's another sense to that word though, which means when we, we sometimes use this as Christians, we say, I am convicted about something I did that was wrong. I did something that was wrong. I feel guilty. I feel guilty. I know that guilt is on me and I am convicted that I did wrong, okay? That's another usage that we use here, okay? Jesus is saying here that the Holy Spirit's gonna come and convict people concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he shows how all three of these work together. Look at the next verse. This is verse nine. It says, they're going to be convicted concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Who's they? The world. And so just know, he's not even talking about the disciples here. He's talking about the world. So the world, the people out there, they're going to be convicted of their sin because they didn't believe in me. That is the, the height of all the sin that happens here in the book of John. I want you to think, who are the people in the book of John so far that haven't believed in Jesus? Because you've got the disciples who believe, right? You might think of Judas, like, oh, well, he didn't believe in Jesus. Well, what about all the religious leaders who heard Jesus teach and kind of fought against him and said, that's not for me. No, no, no. You can't speak for God. That's not true. Okay, they all rejected Jesus. But also all the, the common people that heard Jesus's message and didn't do anything about it. The people who didn't repent of their sin. Those people says they're going to be convicted of their sin of rejection in the end. Next section, verse 10, says the Spirit's going to come, the Helper's going to come to the world and convict them concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, convict of righteousness. Okay. The word righteous means the opposite of evil, right? That's pretty simple. There's good, there's evil. There's righteous, there's unrighteous. Okay, righteousness that Jesus is talking about here says the people will be convicted of righteousness. Not saying that they're going to find out that they were really good, that they were innocent people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, because I go to the Father. When will the world see that Jesus was righteous? When will these people figure that out, that Jesus is righteous? Well, when Jesus goes back to the Father. When does that happen? At the resurrection and the ascension. So what Jesus is saying is the world that's going to convict me of sin, saying that I'm unrighteous and that I deserve to die, Jesus is saying. They're going to see that I was righteous the whole time when I die, and then when I rise again, and then when I go back to the Father. So that's what he's talking about there. Next section here, he says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Talking about Satan there. 
says that even when Jesus dies, Jesus says about his own death, Satan, the opponent of the world, the ruler of the world, really, the opponent of everything that's good, he's judged in that moment. So sometimes when we view conviction of the spirit, what we usually think of is the spirit convicts Christians. Okay, that is true because guess where every Christian starts out? In the world, okay? So he's saying that people will be convicted in one of two ways. The spirit's either gonna come and convict people in the world, like you and me, of our sin. And some of us will respond to that conviction by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus, right? We're gonna be convicted about, about our sin, see that we're not righteous and see that we deserve to be judged. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says, but there's also people in the world that will be convicted in the end of their sin, of Jesus's righteousness, and of judgment, okay? So two camps here, even within the world, because we respond to conviction in two different ways. Verse 12, he goes on, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, now he gives a different name for the helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, I don't really think that that's a great translation into all truth because the word actually means in all truth. And when you read that, what you might think is, oh, I'll be guided into all truth. Like I don't know the truth now and then I'll know the truth later. That's kind of what that sounds like to us. Well, what he's trying to say here is the disciples have the truth because they've been with Jesus. Jesus is saying, you're, you're in the truth. Imagine truth is like a, I don't know, a big jelly bean, right? Big jelly bean, right? And they're in the jelly bean. <laughs> I don't know why I said jelly bean, but just picture it, right? And it's too late. Um, they're in the jelly bean, okay, of truth. Jesus says, the spirit will guide you in that jelly bean, right? This is a big jelly bean, right? <laughs> Huge jelly bean. But imagine it, right? Imagine some big thing that's engulfed you, right? He'll guide you in it. Not that you're not in it right now, and he's going to lead you into it, but you're already in it, and he's going to guide you in it. So I think that's what he's saying here. That's the technical word. The word is in. It's not the word into. There's two different words. Anyway, that's a lot of too much, too much grammar for you right there. It's like, whoa, it's seven o'clock on a, on a Wednesday night. We can't do that right now. Um, anyway, whatever. He, I heard he said jelly bean, so I know that's what you're going to think of the rest of the sermon. But he says, basically, you're in the truth now. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to keep guiding you in truth. Just like I've been your guide, the Spirit's going to be your guide in truth. It says, because he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Well, who's he going to hear from? He will declare to you the things that are to come. Wow, that's interesting. Now the Holy Spirit's going to come and give them new revelation about what's going to happen in the future. It says that then, next verse, he says, he, the Spirit, will glorify me. He'll promote me, Jesus is saying. For he will take all, for, for he will take what is mine, what I've said, and, I'll, and he'll declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit, his role with these disciples is he's going to continue to teach them what Jesus taught them. It's like Jesus taught them the truth. The Spirit's going to continue, continually keep them in the truth. And now that I said it, it's a big jelly bean of truth, think about the jelly bean of truth, right? He's going to keep them in that truth and they're going to grow in more understanding of the truth, okay? That's a lot about the Holy Spirit. So I want us to write this down for point number one, okay? As we study that whole thing, I want us to think back through that and think about this. I want you to appreciate, really appreciate and be thankful for the Holy Spirit's role as the helper, okay? The Holy Spirit's role as the helper. What is that like, okay? Jesus describes in a lot of detail what it's like for the Holy Spirit to be our helper. Now, when you think of a helper, you might think of a person who's like, 
a junior teacher, right? Like a teacher's aide. Or you might think of the water boy, right? Those are kind of some really lowly imagery. I don't want you to think about the Holy Spirit as like uh, someone who's less than you, because obviously the Holy Spirit is God, okay? And he's not even less than the Father or the Son. They're, they're co-equal in how important they are, but they do different things. They do different roles. So Jesus is describing what the Holy Spirit's going to do. And it's important for us because the Holy Spirit is God for us to understand his role as the helper. So first of all, if we look back at what he's already said, I mean, just going through this passage, verse seven says that he is going to be a bigger advantage to the disciples than Jesus being with you. Now, I want you to think about that. What is better for you? What would you rather have? If you got to choose, would you rather have Jesus live with you and you could talk to him anytime? What would, would you rather have that or rather have the spirit of God living in you? Most of us would probably say, I would rather have Jesus living next door than having the spirit in me because that doesn't seem very exciting, okay? But the reality is we live in a very unique time, very unique time in the history of the world that God's spirit enters people's hearts. That's a unique thing, okay? And, and when you think of all the people in all of history, to think that you right now have the opportunity for God's spirit to enter your heart that is not something that was offered to everybody for all of time, right? That is a, we're in a unique time period, the church age, where the, the spirit of God is offered to us, to live with us, to live in us. So he says it's better. Also says that he's gonna convict people of sin, okay? He's gonna convict people of righteousness, of judgment. We'll go into those more in more detail later, but I also want you to see he's called the spirit of truth, right? The spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth because the Holy Spirit is the one who tells us the truth. Now, when I said earlier, I asked you a question. When you think of the Holy Spirit, what do you think of? Right? Some of you think, because sometimes he's called the Holy Ghost, depending on um, different translations and, you know, different churches call him the Holy Ghost, right? That always freaked me out as a kid. Like, what do you mean he's the Holy Ghost, right? Like he's like a, like a ghost with holes in him, like, like a bed sheet with a lot of holes. Like, what are you talking about? The Holy Ghost, right? You probably maybe thought never maybe never thought about that before. Now you got an image in your mind. Um, right, that's not what he's like. Okay, that's a, that's a bad image. Um, the Holy Spirit is God's spirit, and He's mentioned in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is the one who it's like the Word of God is given, and the Holy Spirit acts. The Holy Spirit's doing things in the Old Testament, and He is interacting with people in special ways. Sometimes in the Old Testament it says that God's Spirit empowered people to do great things for him, right? We just read about the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, right? We read that in the, the end of the book of Exodus. Now you might've thought, okay, yeah, they're building a tabernacle, so what? In those passages, it says that God's spirit empowered the craftsmen, that they had extra skill to build the tabernacle because the, the Holy Spirit of God was working through them to build it, right? So the Holy Spirit's doing a lot of things, even in the Old Testament, okay? But now it says he's coming to convict and convince people of their sin, and also of their need for Jesus' perfect righteousness. I want you to turn to the Old Testament to that passage I talked about earlier where the Holy Spirit is promised to us. I want you to turn to the book of Ezekiel. Okay? If you can find that book, please find it. The book of Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel 36. This book is important. And this section is so important because what we find out right here is that not only is God's Spirit working among people and doing good things for people, just like God does. But the Holy Spirit is now going to do something different inside of people. Check this out. Ezekiel 36. 
Grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, check it out. Grab your Bible. Check it out. Okay, cool. Ezekiel 36. You might need to check the, the table of contents for this one if you're not using your Bible very much. Here you go. Ezekiel 36. Look at verse 25. Ezekiel 36, 25. Okay, we're jumping right into the middle of something Ezekiel is saying. But check out what he says here. Verse 25. He's promising things about the future for this, this nation of Israel. Verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be cleansed. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So he's saying this group of people, the nation of Israel, they've been doing all these bad things. They've been serving these false gods. They've been living in sin. Okay? Then God says he's going to clean them from all of that. It's like their guilt is going to be removed. Verse 26 says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Okay? Here's the picture that Ezekiel's painting here, really God's painting, that people walk around with stone hearts. It's like their hearts are made of rock. It's like they can't feel. It's like they don't see their sin. It's like they don't understand things about God. Their heart, and that was the, not just the idea of our hearts like uh, that pump blood. The idea of the heart in the Old Testament was the, the, the central, you know, focus of, of your thinking, uh, of your emotions, of your thoughts really is what it was. That it's like in people's inner self, whatever you call your soul or your spirit, that was the heart in the Old Testament. So this, he says it's like people are dead on the inside. And God has to come in, take out their dead hearts and put in hearts that feel, hearts that are new, parts of, of flesh, he says here. Then he says, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now think about that. God's just saying, yeah, I'm going to remove your, your bad heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. And that could be all that he says, right? He says, I'm just going to give you a, a, a fresh start. Okay. That is sometimes all that we view salvation as. That yeah, God's going to give us a fresh start. Give us a second chance. Okay. He does more than that. He doesn't just give people a new heart so they can try again. Okay. When people are saved from their sin, here's what God does. Okay. He takes out our sinful hearts of stone that he calls them here. Replaces them with a heart of flesh. A heart that can actually feel towards God. And then he gives his spirit. Okay. So it's not just a one for one. It's like a two for one deal. If, you, if you're following this right here, okay? The heart of stone is taken out, the heart of flesh is put in, and then God's spirit is put in, okay? This was not fulfilled when Ezekiel was writing, okay? This was not fulfilled at this point, okay? And a lot of what he promises here has not even been fulfilled yet, okay? <laughs> if you notice the next verse, it says, you shall dwell in the, you shall Dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people. And then he's saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What land are you talking about, right? Well, that part of this promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. But the New Testament authors are very clear. We're now living in the new era that we call the new covenant. This promise that God made to his people, that he's gonna give them his spirit, that's where we're living in right now. Makes that very clear. That's the time period we live in right now, which is why I said earlier, how cool is it that we live right now in the time where God's spirit enters people? We don't think about that as very unique, but I want you to think about that as pretty unique here. In this new covenant, it says a couple things. First of all, that God's spirit is going to help us walk in his statutes. You see that? That means his rules, okay? How can a person start obeying God, okay? 
without this heart change and without God's spirit put in them, you will be very, very, very unsuccessful. Okay? If you are just going to try to obey God and think that if you can try to obey God a lot, then maybe he'll be pleased with you, okay? you you'll, you'll fail. You just cannot do that. Okay? It just won't work. You can try, but you'll be wasting your time because you cannot obey God perfectly. What needs to happen is he gives you a new spirit. Okay? And what he's not saying here is that when you have this new spirit, you'll be perfect all the time. That's not the teaching of the New Testament on this. But it is that when God's spirit is put in you, things are radically different. Which is why when we talk about becoming Christians, one thing that we say is, I hope there's a big change in your heart. Okay? If there is no big change in your heart from the time where you weren't a Christian to the time where you became a Christian, if there's not a big change in your heart, right, then this thing probably didn't happen to you. And if there's not a better keeping of God's rules afterwards than there was before, then this probably didn't happen to you. Right? That's why we talk about that for, for proof of salvation or whatever. Ezekiel promises this, and Jesus is basically telling these disciples at this meal, that's what's going to happen to you. We're going to see that promise fulfilled here pretty soon. I want you to think, if we're just going to appreciate the Spirit's work, where would we be without God's Spirit? Okay? What, would be, what would Christians be lacking if God's Spirit was not working in us? Okay? A couple things that are very obvious. We wouldn't have this new heart. Okay? We wouldn't be able to feel towards God in, in the sense that we wouldn't be able to respond to God's word correctly because we would have an unfeeling heart. The other thing that Jesus makes very clear back in our passage, and you can turn back there to, to the Gospel of John, back to John 16. Also, there'd be no conviction of sin. Okay? And that's why a lot of people right now, if you looked at their life and you talked to them, they, if you asked them, hey, are you a good person or a bad person? Most people say, I'm a good person. The reason people say that is because they lack the conviction of the spirit to say, no, I'm actually not a good person. I'm a bad person. And maybe that's news to you. Maybe you never heard that tonight, but you are hearing it right now. That God's word is very clear. We from our hearts are not good people. We're not good. We're bad. And it's not just that we do bad things. It's that the bad things we do, Jesus says, are a reflection of our hearts. He says in the gospels that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Even your words as they're transcribed in heaven every single day, right? Just as God keeps track of all your words, those are a reflection of our hearts and it shows that our hearts are bad. Jeremiah 17, 9 says our hearts are deceitful, which means they lie to us. We can't even understand them and they're sick and they're wicked, okay? What kind of people understand that? Do most people understand? The answer is no. Most people do not understand that. It takes God's spirit to show you that for you to honestly understand that. So people don't recognize that unless God's spirit shows them. So back to our passage, he talks about conviction. He says in verse eight, that the spirit, God's spirit is gonna convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I said that this passage primarily is about the world. And I want you to think in that, those terms. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about, the world, okay? Who makes up the world? You might think in one sense, everybody does. But remember, in this context, are, is the world the, the, the Christians or the non-Christians? Okay? It's the non-Christians. It's the outside world, okay? Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's going to come and convict everyone. Now, how does that work? Well, when we're convicted of our sin, okay, when we start to understand that we are sinful people, 
and that we deserve punishment for our sin, that God is better than we are, that God is good and we're not, once we start to understand that, we can do one of two things with conviction. Okay? The first thing we can do is repent. We can turn from our sin. We can ask God for forgiveness and say, I'm done with that. I don't want to live for that sin anymore. I want to live for you. That's one thing that we can do. And all real Christians, that's what they do when they're convicted. But there's another thing that happens when people are convicted of their sin. They do the exact opposite. They harden their hearts even more. Right? Just to use that, that illustration that Ezekiel gave, it's like their heart of stone just gets harder and harder and harder. Okay? Repentance and rejection. Those are the two things that people do when they're convicted of their sin. And the reality is some people in this world don't even feel that conviction over their sin until it's too late. They don't even feel God's spirit convicting them of, the, of their wrongdoing until it's like they're in the courtroom and the Holy Spirit says you're convicted, guilty. But if you understand that you're guilty before God, here's the question for you. Who showed that to you? Was it your mom, your dad? Was it a pastor? Was it a sermon? Was it a friend? Maybe. But they could have said that, said that, said that, and it didn't hit your heart, okay? Who is the person who convicts our hearts so we, that we see our guilt and sin? One person, the Holy Spirit. That's it. So whether you've repented of your sin or you've rejected Jesus, our right response to the Spirit's conviction on our hearts is to submit to that. Whether you've submitted in the past or you've never submitted to the Spirit's conviction, when we read the Bible and it's like, oh yeah, I'm not a Christian. Oh yeah, I, I, I've fallen short too. I deserve judgment. When you realize that and understand that in your heart, you do one of two things, repent or reject. What I'm telling you to do, and what God's Spirit wants you to do is turn from your sin and repent when you feel that conviction. So point number two is this, submit yourself to the helper's conviction. Submit yourself to the helper's conviction concerning sin, righteousness, judgment. When Jesus was on earth, you know what he said to people who thought they were righteous? John 8, 24, he said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's John 8, 24. That's what Jesus said. Who's saying that today? Who's showing people's hearts that today? The Spirit's doing that. Which is why, if you've been convicted of your sin, maybe you've sat in a sermon from me or, or in the edge or whatever. You, you sat in a sermon in main service with Pastor Mike or whatever. And you sat there and you've known, I am guilty. I'm guilty. And then now it's your choice. What are you going to do about that? When that happens and you feel that, the Holy Spirit is working through, usually, his words, right? The Bible to hit your heart and convict you. He's doing that, okay? So a lot of people say, oh, if you feel bad about yourself, just get rid of those bad thoughts, those bad feelings. No, the Holy Spirit does that, right? So if you're gonna get rid of your bad thoughts altogether, right, you might be getting rid of the Holy Spirit's conviction. So don't do that, right? We gotta understand, okay, am I feeling conviction from the Holy Spirit? Because he convicts people of their sin. Once you think about something, can you know that you're a bad person and turn to Jesus for salvation on your own? Do people just do that on their own? 
Do they think, wow, yeah, I just, I've been thinking, like, I'm just like, I'm a really bad person. Like, I, I need somebody to save me. They, they, don't, they don't get that unless God's spirit is working in them. People don't come to Jesus for salvation unless the spirit is convicting them that they need salvation from their sins. They don't ask to be saved unless they feel that they need to be saved. It says also convicting of righteousness. We talked about that earlier. But there's a passage I want you to write down in the Old Testament that's super important. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah 64, 6. God's talking again and he says about these Israelites. Isaiah specifically speaks here. We have all become like one who's unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags. It's like we're offering a present to God. And what it is, it's our old, sweaty, B.O. smelling P.E. clothes. Filthy rags, gross clothes. It's like I'm going to offer a present to God. I'm going to give him my, my P.E. gym bag after, after I'm done. You know when you take it home on Fridays, right? You know, my people from La Paz, right? You know what I'm talking about? I went to La Paz, right? And it smelled bad. And then you brought it home on Friday and it always smelled bad and you kept it in that. Do they still make those little red um, string bags at La Paz? They still have those? Yeah, I had those back then. That was gross. Um, I think of those, I, I shudder a little bit. I'm like, oh, all smelled bad in there, right? God's word says that your attempts to please God, right? If you want to try to please God and try to obey your parents to please God and try to make God happy somehow based on what you do, he says that's like offering God filthy rags, He's not going to take it. It's not good enough for him. And maybe that's news to you. And if that's news to you, I want you to think, okay, wow, that, I, I didn't realize that before. If that's what you're thinking right now, God's spirit wants to convict you that you're guilty. You need to see I'm guilty. Okay? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Our righteousness doesn't cut it. And also he says convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Understanding that, wow, because of my sin and because my righteousness does not stack up to God's, that means I deserve to be judged. And for everyone who's a real Christian, that hit home at some point for them. They can look back at a time when that first hit home and was like, whoa, I'm guilty. Wait, I deserve to be punished. Not just we, but like me. I deserve that. Spirit does that to people. Maybe he's doing that to you right now. Maybe he's been doing that to you for a long time and you've taken road number two of rejection instead of road number one of repentance. One passage that you can just write down, Acts chapter two, verses 37, 38. I want you to see what it looks like when people are convicted of their sin. Here's questions that they start to ask when they're convicted of their sin. This is the first day of the church. This is when the Holy Spirit first was used through a sermon through the apostles. This is the apostles' first sermon where the spirit was there present working, right? Just like right now, tonight, through this word, through this Bible, the Holy Spirit is working tonight, convicting people's hearts right now in this very room, okay? The first time that ever happened with the apostles was here in Acts 2. Peter preaches. It says, when they heard what Peter preached, he preached that they condemned Jesus to die and that they were responsible for his death and that God was righteous, and that Jesus was righteous the whole time, and that they needed to turn from their sin. It says this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's a helpful way of describing what it feels like to be convicted. I'm cut to the heart. I get it. 
I understand that I, I don't deserve a, a life with God. I deserve to be punished. They were cut to the heart. And they turned to Peter and they said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What am I supposed to do? I'm guilty. Peter said to them, first word, what do you think it is? First word, repent. Repent, turn around. If you're being convicted by the spirit, turn from your sin. Tonight, don't wait till after small groups to turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Repent and also be baptized. That idea is, is join this crew. Be baptized. Join this crew. Every one of you, all of you, everyone who's convicted, you should all do this in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And guess what's going to happen then? Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit is working on people's hearts. And when we turn from our sin, G, uh, Peter says right here, you're going to get the Holy Spirit in your heart, just like they did. Here's the question for you. I and mean, the point's pretty clear. Submit yourself. But here's the question. Have you submitted yourself to the Spirit's conviction? First of all, in the big sense, like do I even turn from my sin? Or do I love my sin? Have I trusted in Jesus for salvation? Or am I still trying to trust that my good works are somehow going to get me there? Then really for everybody in the room, whether you're a Christian or not, and this one, that one was for the non-Christians, but for the Christians here, if you really have trusted Christ, are you submitting right now to the Spirit's conviction when you're convicted about words that you shouldn't say? Are you like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to do that anymore. When you're convicted of bad attitudes you have towards your family, are you submitting by saying, I'm not, okay, I'm done. I'm Repent, I'm done. I'm not going to have those attitudes anymore. When you're convicted about sin that, other people don't even know about, just you and maybe family members or whatever, ways that you've wronged other people. When you're convicted about that and the Spirit convicts you of that, what do you do? Are you saying, yeah, okay, I'm going to submit myself. I, I'm going to do exactly what God wants me to here or not. This whole discussion about conviction, it really leaves a question in our minds, a big question, Basically, how does this all work? How does this work? How do I know if the spirit is doing this or if it's like something else or if it's just I'm feeling a certain way? How do I, how do I know the difference? Okay. Well, he says that he's going to guide them into truth, right? They're already in that jelly bean of truth, right? You already have that visualized, right? And he's going to keep leading them in truth. Okay. The way that he does that in particular is he guided the disciples and the apostles in the truth, and they wrote the truth down. Okay. Now, how does the Holy Spirit right now teach you truth? How does he do that? Who does he use? He can use a lot of people, but this is the truth that he uses. He uses your Bible. Okay. Because this Bible right here is the words of the Spirit. Okay, point number three is this. I want you to write it down, then we're going to turn to a passage. Count on the Helper to guide you in truth. Count on the helper. Count on him. Count on these words to guide you in truth. Don't count on what the world says is truth. Don't trust yourself. That's what most people do in this room. I'm going to figure out for myself what I think is right and wrong. Maybe you 
trust a, an influencer outside of yourself, or maybe you trust your, your parents completely, or you trust somebody completely to just be the, the ultimate truth giver. Well, Jesus says that's the spirit, so he's the only one who can really do that perfectly. And your leaders can try, your pastors can try, your parents can try, but if, if they're not using this book right here, then they're not really leading you in the spirit. They can give you great advice and all that, but this book is the Spirit's words. The passage I was talking about was 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. I want you to write that down. 2 Peter 1, 21. Peter says in this passage that no prophecy or no, no portion of the Bible is produced by the will of man. It wasn't just that Isaiah sat down one day and said, you know what, I should, I should write a book. I'm going to write a book and it's going to be really big. Right? No, no, God spoke these words to him. They ha- these are the words of God. Is, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Even the words of, of Paul and of Peter and of James and John, words of Matthew and Luke, those guys, our New Testament, our Old Testament, our Bible, these are the words of God. So this is really how the Spirit leads you. This is a very simple way. So the, the, the how question Point number three is the Bible. Okay, how, how does the Spirit lead us in the truth? Well, the Bible. In that passage, 2 Peter 1, 3 says that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. So, if you ask God to give you something new to help you obey... Right? Just know God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Okay? God has gone above and beyond by giving you his spirit if you're a Christian. So he's talking to Christians here. If you're a Christian, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Right? How does that work? How, well, I feel like I need a lot of advice or help for life and for godliness. How can I live for God? Well, Second Peter 1 is all about the Bible. That, that's what he's building up to. In verse 3, he's building up to verse 21. The question is basically for you, is your thinking shaped by the Bible or is it shaped by something else? How is your thinking shaped? Is it shaped by the Bible or is it, by, or is it shaped by something else? You're thinking about the world and life and justice and right and wrong, good and bad, cool and uncool. What's it shaped by? Is it always being shaped by the Bible? And I want to see if, this, if God approves of this. I want to see what the Spirit says in this book about that thing? Or is it just like, I'm just going with whatever I want to go with? I want you to imagine you've got a math test. For some of you, this is not imaginary. This is tomorrow. Bummer. I haven't had a math test in a number of years, and I'm thankful for that. But I want you to imagine you have a math test, and uh, you've got a best friend. Everybody's got a best friend. Or you don't, and that's fine too. Um, (laughs) What I meant is everybody's got a friend who's not that good at a subject, unless you're just running like just a circle with all nerds or something. You're all like really smart, and that's cool. But we've all got that friend who like always kind of needs help with stuff. Math just happens to be one of those things. For me, it was English growing up, okay? It's just I wasn't, I was no good at any English all the time, you know? I just was really bad at English. Anyway. So, once you imagine you got that math test, let's just stick with math for now. 
we had this math test <laughs> tomorrow. Sorry about that. And let's just say late tonight you're studying. And um, you're studying with that friend who's just, you know, not that great at math, you know? You, you know that friend, right? Maybe you are that friend, and that's okay. If you don't know that friend, you are that friend. Um, and you're studying with your friend who's just not, not as good at math as you. And you're trying to teach him, trying to help him. And then you say, you know what? I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, uh, tomorrow for my test, I'm just going to do whatever this friend does. Like, they're not very good, but I'm just, I'm honestly, I'm just going to do whatever they do. Overnight, for some reason, your opinion about them changes, and then you start to act like them, okay? That's called stupid, right? <laughs> it's called stupid, right? You'd prefer maybe to hang out and study with that person who's a little smarter at math than you, right? Unless you got like a pride issue or something, but you want to learn from the person who always knows the right answer so that they can help you and they can teach you and so that you can learn, right? That seems like the obvious thing, right? Reason I bring that up, and we know that that would be dumb, okay? But the problem is, for most of us, we are shaped more by the people that we know are wrong. We know in our heads that the world has the wrong answers to stuff. We know that, but really we're shaped all the time by it. And we let ourselves be shaped by it. It's not smart. It's, it's foolish for us. When, especially after we look at this passage, Jesus says, the spirit of truth can guide you in all truth. If you just open this, this book, if you just look to this book for answers instead of looking to the world for answers, if you look to this booth, book to tell you the truth, instead of looking to everybody else to tell you the truth, it'd be dumb for us to do that. We need to turn to the right source for truth. And that's why the Holy Spirit here is called the spirit of truth and we can trust him. But we gotta be in his word. Gotta be talking to him. Be praying. It's scary that Jesus left. Maybe not so scary to us because we never knew him here in person. But it's a good thing for us to study the Holy Spirit tonight. And this week, as we go out and do what we're going to do, and we take our math tests and we do what we do, to be making our decisions and our actions and our life shaped by what God's word says, shaped by the Spirit. If we do that, we're making full advantage, taking full advantage of what Jesus offers through that relationship with the Holy Spirit. So let's pray about that right now. And we're going to talk about that for a few minutes this morning.